welcome to the monthly podcast series of maki finance by sagar i am your host sagar singh setia and today i am joined by eric who is the founder of epb macro research eric has done a phenomenal job the last 2 to 3 years and he has developed some really insightful job around the business cycles in the us and welcome eric to the podcast thanks for having me i have to say that i uh, i follow your twitter feed and and the research that you put out closely as well and and you've been doing a great job specifically with some of the interworkings of the banking system and the federal reserve plumbing so uh, i'm looking forward to this thank you thank you okay let us start so let us start with the secular trends and i think you have done a phenomenal job uh, regarding secular trends i've read your twitter thread and articles around demographics so i also think that demographics is a major challenge a global financial system and we have seen that it started with japan and now it's everywhere so in the developed world whether it is us or europe or now even in china so we have seen that since the beginning of this century the population has been falling and around 2010 we have seen that we have entered degrowth in japan and now for the first time ever we have seen that even in china the deaths have surpassed the births so it is now in the degrowth in the degrowth uh, so what do you think that what are the implications of the secular trend on long term growth and inflation in the global economy that um demographics is probably the single most important trend to analyze when looking at a country's long term growth potential or um long term inflation pressures uh and the problem is that demographics are such a slow moving factor they don't impact anything on any year to year basis and you can't use demographics to predict what this year or next year's gdp growth will be or inflation rate will be but what it does help you with uh and quite reliably so is get a sense of where the 10 year average of gdp will be or the longer term inflation trends and since we have generally such a short term focus with markets a lot of people tend to dismiss the impact of demographics but you know cycles compound on top of cycles and before you know it you have a 10 year stretch of the economy where the growth rate was significantly below what people had projected or in the decade prior to covid the inflation rate was very low relative to what people expected uh and as you mentioned in japan in china and now in large parts of europe we've entered depopulation where the number of people in the working age group generally defined as the 15 to 64 year old bracket are declining there's there's outright less people than there were a year ago and it's extraordinarily difficult for an economy to avoid what would be described as broad based deflation once they enter a stage of depopulation and the reason for that is because most of the economies around the world uh to varying degrees but most of the economies have 
uh, gravitated to something of a real estate-based construction model of which they obtain most of their growth. This was definitely characteristic of Japan in the 80s and 90s. It was certainly characteristic of China over the last 10 or 15 years, uh, to somewhat of a lesser extent, Europe. But we've even seen it in the United States over the last couple of years where a predominant amount of the growth generated is driven by the construction of whether it's new apartment buildings, new single family homes, or uh, real estate assets more broadly. And that model can work for a period of time, but if you have less people uh, next year than you did this year, but you're increasing the supply of real estate assets, that model tends to collapse on itself uh, and it tends to deflate a large uh, real estate bubble. And that's what happened in Japan. It's in the early stages of happening in China. Uh, it's happened across various parts of Europe, specifically places like Spain and Italy, where you see real estate prices down over 15 or 20 year periods. Since the United States is not yet in outright depopulation, uh, it's difficult to say that the outcome will be the same for the United States in the next two or three or five years, because our demographic scenario is not quite as dire as some of the other countries. But what we're starting to experience in large parts of the world is that governments have gravitated towards a real estate construction-based model to obtain growth. And when you have depopulation, you mathematically can't sustain real estate-based construction. So economies are having to try and divert away from real estate without uh, deflation, and that's proving to be quite difficult for a lot of countries. Well, that was great explanation. And I wanted to add a point that you said that US is not yet there, but how, how uh, the, the, the immigration that is adding to the population, if we see that the only factor that due to which the US is not yet there is the immigration. So how, how long can the US sustain the population growth? When will the, like we say, the X date for the USD, when will the deck ceiling, sorry. So when will the X date for that depopulation arrive mm -hmm. in the US according to you? It, it's such a good question. And it's a very good point. I can tell that you've gone into the, the details of the demographics. So in the United States, um, you're right that we have uh, immigration as the factor that's keeping the population growth rate positive. But I would note that um, the estimates are only suggesting that this prime age population, this 15 to 64 year olds, which is really the most important cohort in the United States, it's only projected to grow at something like 0.2 or 0.3%. So um, it's not as bad as Europe and Japan and China that have negative one or negative 2% growth rates, uh, but it's barely any positive growth. And what we're also finding is that as the demographic data is reported each year, it's consistently falling under the estimates or falling under the projections because sadly, the the death numbers are, are coming in higher Um particularly in this 15 to 64-year-old bracket. Uh, and that's actually causing the, the the real numbers to come in below the, the estimates. So while the estimates are for 
0.2 or 0.3, we're actually starting to see numbers that are very close to zero, if not slightly negative. Um, so it's it's possible that we're right on the cusp of you know flat population growth. It's it's slightly positive, maybe slightly negative. Um, but the problem is that um as the debt levels in the economy continue to rise, uh, and this is the case for Japan, China, Europe, and the United States, um, debt levels were really the primary factor supporting this real estate-based model. And because it got a little bit out of hand in all of these countries, the home prices generally rose considerably faster than the average income. And that put a lot of stress on household formation rates because people were traditionally able to afford houses in their 20s and start a family. That's been pushed to the 30s and even 40s. And it's increasingly difficult for people to start families or have larger families when they're a decade behind in their household formation years. So the degradation of the household formation as a result of this huge gap between incomes and home price appreciation is sort of um, setting in stone this, this decline where it's going to be almost impossible to turn this ship around because the, the birth rate has fallen so far below replacement that even if you changed some of these trends today, you're still going to have negative population dynamics that move through the global economy for the next 10 or 15 years. That's really the problem with these demographics is that even when you are aware of the problem, since it's so slow moving, even if you enact changes today, it'll take 10 or 15 years to really have any material impact. So um, it, it looks like the US is going to be destined for, for something similar to uh, our our counterparts in some of the other major economies of the world, although it doesn't look like even if we do slip into negative population growth, it'll be anywhere near the magnitude of Europe, China, or Japan. Totally agree with that. So I have some points regarding this, uh, the implications of this uh, longer term secular trend. So we will see, as you mentioned, that the household formation will decline. So the consumption, household consumption will, de will decline. Then we have the social security needs. So it will increase a lot, bargaining social security needs you will have. And then we have seen that in Japan, which is a, which was a high savings rate society. Even in Japan, the savings rate has declined due to the declining demographics. So That's we'll right. see a low savings rate. And then we will have all uh, the changes due to these, we will have a higher deficit for the government. So That's the right. government has to spend a lot on social security needs. And we have also read that in, in the, within the next 10 years, the social security fund in the US will go bankrupt, will have no money more mm -hmm. because the median age population will increase, which is today 38, will slowly and slowly increase to around 43 years by the end of 2060. That is as per the US Census Bureau. So what do you think? How will the future pan out? How will the government cope up with the rising costs? What will be the direction of the fiscal policy according to you? Okay, so I'll I'll outline a couple conceivable paths. Hard to say which one will follow, but one path is that um, they cut some of the entitlement benefits, just a reduction in some of the promises that have been made. Um, it has happened in many other countries like Greece. 
It's certainly possible, although it's politically difficult. Uh, that would result in most likely lower inflation and lower real growth, uh, a lower standard of living because you'll be reducing the expected income of your population. The second path is you keep all of the promises that you've made, but you substantially increase taxes in order to pay for them so that the deficits don't get unmanageable. That would also have likely the same effect of slowing economic growth and slowing inflation, because again, you'll reduce the disposable income of your working age population who will be taxed in order to pay for that. So in both of those scenarios, you're going to end up with a lower standard of living or a lower real economic growth rate for your for the majority of your population. The third outcome is you don't increase taxes and you don't cut any of the entitlements and you fund the programs through ever larger fiscal deficits. Um, as we've seen throughout the uh, COVID exercise, it's impossible to increase the standard of living of your population by taking on more debt. You can increase the nominal GDP growth rate, but the real GDP per capita is lower today than it was on the pre-COVID trend line. So if we kept growing the economy at the same pace that it was before COVID, which was a very poor growth rate, something to the effect of 1.5%, we would have had a higher real GDP per capita than we have today, meaning that the increase in indebtedness did not increase the standard of living at all. In fact, it worsened the standard of living. Um, so in all three outcomes, uh, you're going to end up with a lower real GDP growth rate. You're going to end up with a worse quality standard of living. With the third option, where you fund it with ever-increasing fiscal deficits, you may be able to produce higher nominal GDP growth or higher um, inflation. But that's not going to be the fiscal savior that a lot of people think that it is. And we're witnessing that today as, as in the aftermath of the, of the fiscal uh, spending during the COVID uh, pandemic, because all of the government's future liabilities, all of these entitlement programs, which are the largest source of the fiscal burden, they are all indexed to inflation. So even if you increase the inflation rate to four, five, six percent, your future spending will rise just as fast as the inflation rate. So you're not going to make any substantial progress in reducing your future fiscal burden if all of the future fiscal burden is indexed to the inflation rate. So going down the path of trying to fund this program with ever-increasing fiscal deficits is likely, in my opinion, to lead to the worst outcome. I think uh, some combination of reducing the benefits promised and increasing the taxes um, will be the best solution. It'll certainly come at a short-term cost, but I think long-term, it's a more tenable solution than trying to fund it through uh, ever-expanding fiscal deficits. But I want to be clear that in either case, all three paths will lead to a lower real GDP growth rate and a lower standard of living. So the path of trying to use inflation to solve this is not uh, going to going to yield materially better benefits than solving it in what's likely to be the correct way.
agree with that the that the fiscal policy is the main nail in the coffin i think for this secular trend okay now let us move to the next question one of the biggest deflationary forces post 2001 was china i think the last 20 years there was cheap energy coming from russia and then there was china which was the industry of the world manufacturer of the world and the cheap labor the globalization was a tailwind for lower global inflation now we are entering into a different world post covid and post the war last year we have seen that as we have discussed that the chinese active workforce has been decreasing it has peaked it was it has peaked in 2014 and 15 and since then it has been de- declining and then we have discussed that in the us also we'll have the similar scenario in the next few years but this ai and machine learning can you do you think that we will have productivity increases uh, productivity gains through ai and machine learning which will outweigh the demographic losses or the uh, the labor shortages that that is that is that will come in the next few years what do you think about the productivity gains that we had like uh in since the 1990s mm-hmm. since the internet era we had productivity gains which mitigated some of the labor shortages uh, do you think we'll have a similar scenario in the next decade or so so i would want to make the point that i agree we're going to go into an environment that doesn't have the benefit of as much abundant cheap labor as we did before um but when we try and use macroeconomics to forecast for the inflation rate or something like that we really have to be careful to consider that we're looking at all sides of the equation if we just look at china and just say that there is going to be a labor shortage you may end up with the conclusion that that could be inflationary because it'll increase wage pressure but at the very same time we can't dismiss the fact that over the last 15 years or last 20 years rather china's infrastructure or property development was larger than what most countries do in a 100 or 200 years meaning that the demand for global commodities that china produced was extraordinary and that was a massive inflationary force that reflated the global economy throughout the entire 2010s while the us was mired with 1.5% growth europe had about 3 recessions during those 2010 periods japan had about 5 recessions during that 2010 period the entire global economy was was stuck in basically a quasi recession for 10 years but you had successive fiscal impulses or credit impulses coming out of china which caused significant upward pressure on copper prices cement prices oil prices all of that also goes away in the next 10 years because as we said with a depopulation you can't support continued real estate investment so we have to look at both sides of the equation that yes we are losing some cheap labor supply but we're also losing one of the largest tailwinds to global commodities that the world has basically ever seen So there will be significant deflationary offsets just in terms of demand that I think will be more than sufficient to offset the labor supply and then when you um add to that equation the technology the automation and some of the uh, uh technological efficiencies that we're building in I do think 
that overall the macro picture looking at it from all angles will be more than enough to offset the reduction in labor supply although that that force will be there but there will be a reduction in demand as well and then you'll have automation and and some increases in productivity that come so overall i do think will will more than offset that force great let us move to the cyclical trends and the data that has been emerging out of the us this week we got the fed senior loan officer opinion survey slos and there was around 46% of the banks reported tightening lending standards and ironically this data was available to the fomc members just before the policy and what i think was the highlight was the divergence in the auto credit card and personal loans so we saw an uptick in demand for from for these loans and what i personally think is that the employment is holding on uh, there is an exceptional extraordinary situation about the employment we will discuss in detail going forward but as of now for this question for this part so what do you think that the the cni loans witness a contraction but the personal loans and the auto and cc loans witness an uptick what do you think what what are the reasons for these uh, developments in the slos survey what do you think what what is the what are the reasons for this they yeah, very very good call out i think that you're right that um the broad labor market hasn't deteriorated to the extent that uh you would expect in early recessionary periods mainly from the manufacturing and construction sectors those two sectors have held up better than they do in a traditional cycle because we had residual backlogs in the construction sector and residual backlogs in the manufacturing sector that propelled employment for a longer period of time than you would have expected given the drop off in new orders and and future building permits that's starting to come to an end now because over the last 4 months you have seen cyclical job losses you have started to see job losses come in manufacturing construction temporary help services trucking and transportation the sectors that you would traditionally start to see job losses um the senior loan officer survey was was surveyed i believe in april um so at that time the broad labor market the 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 majority of the way people feel uh was still uh hanging on but as we're starting to see in some of the initial claims data you are seeing the beginning signs of the labor market starting to crack we have the initial claim numbers go, uh starting to go up the continuing claims numbers going up mm. the uh weekly hours in the manufacturing sector have turned down temporary help jobs have started to uh decline and then you're just now starting to see the first couple months of construction and manufacturing job losses so i think what's been happening is that the broad labor market is hanging on there hasn't been a ton of job losses yet but the residual effect of inflation has ate up a lot of the consumer purchasing power which has forced them to to move towards more credit to finance their consumption uh but now we're starting to see the very early signs of the labor market deteriorate the claims numbers the hours numbers the cyclical sectors so as we move throughout the rest of the year that weakness will proliferate through uh and impact the broader economy and then I'll think we will um we'll start to see the 
the final leg of credit tightening, which always happens when the labor market officially starts to decline. So, so I think that is still coming. But for the moment, I think the divergence is coming because this labor cycle has lagged uh, traditional business cycles in terms of how long you would expect the decline to to take after seeing pronounced declines in some of the more early forward-looking indicators. So we have seen that the unemployment rate generally peaks in the middle of the recession, recessionary part. Uh, what do you think, uh, how will this play out and how long will be this recession? And the unemployment rate can shoot up to what percentage? So it is 3.5% as of today. So how much basis points? 5%, 6%, what are you right. pinning up on? So what do you think? So it's it's extremely hard to predict levels. Um, my work mainly focuses on direction. So I will be forecasting weaker unemployment directionally until I see some of the forward-looking indicators turn, and then I'll forecast you know, improving labor market conditions. Forecasting the level is very, very difficult because it's good. It's cutting out, but... Um, it's going to be entirely dependent on how severely credit contracts as a result of this regional banking issue. So you know very well because of the work that you do uh, on the banking sector that these small and regional banks have been responsible for about 65 to 70% of the commercial real estate lending. So we're seeing very, very significant pressure on the share prices of a lot of these small and regional community banks. As the share price comes under significant pressure and starts to fall towards, you know, three, four, five dollars, of course, any fiduciary corporate manager will have to pull their deposits from that bank just because of the optics. You can't keep, uh, you know, client money or your corporate account at a bank that's down 90% or 95%. So then the deposits leave and the bank quickly becomes insolvent. We've seen this with several banks so far, and it looks like uh, you know several more banks are, are under the same type of pressure. Um, it's not difficult to forecast that more banks will fail. What is difficult is the extent of uh, the credit contraction. Does some other industry come in and try and plug the funding gap. Uh, how long do these exactly. banks contract credit? Um, how mm -hmm. severely do they contract credit? So, for example, First Republic was a uh, was a big lender to various real estate, um, um, you know, mortgages and things like this in the California area. Mm -hmm. J.P. Morgan has assumed the First Republic uh, franchise and, and loan book, but it's unclear if they're going to extend all of the same uh, credit to the real estate industry when those loans come up for refinancing, right? So as these small and regional banks fail and they get absorbed by bigger banks, the deposits may be safe, but are we going to see the same level of loan growth? And if we don't, then that's what could uh, intensify some of this recessionary pressure because it'll start to spill over towards other industries namely the the real estate industry which as we mentioned at the onset of the call has been so important to the growth rate of our economy and all other major economies so if we see a very sharp 
contraction in real estate credit availability, then this recession could get very bad. Um, We just don't know. And it's almost impossible to forecast uh, that with macro variables. We can all have an opinion on how hard the credit contraction will be, but it's it's something that's very difficult to predict. You raise a very valid point regarding that who can plug in the gap if the smaller regional banks do not extend credit to the, the commercial real estate sector or the housing sector. And some market participants are thinking that they have been uh, speculating that uh, the shadow banking, the shadow banks, the private credit market will plug the gap and that will also increase the cost of capital for these developers and will hurt more. Mm-hmm. So I, I love your work that you do in the house that you have done in the housing sector in the housing side. And you said that you have repeatedly uh, focused that in the housing sector is the leading indicator of the economy. And I agree because I have been in the real estate sector myself for the last seven to eight years before I ventured into this investing thing and the macro. So uh, now Last year, you guided that there will be a correction of around 15 to 20% in the median price of new homes as per your models, you develop different models. And we witnessed around 17 to 18% decline in the uh, new, the sales price for new houses. But since January or February, we have seen that there are emerging signs that the housing has bottomed. So the prices have uh, jumped from the lows Mm-hmm. And we have seen the MBA mortgage applications also increasing weekly mortgage applications. So what do you think as per your analysis, do you think that the housing market has bottomed or we mm-hmm. have more to go? So the housing price data, as you know, is very lagged. Um, you know, it's very difficult to get real time, reliable information. But I think we can all agree that nationally home prices have declined so far somewhere about five to 7% on average. Um, So we've fallen about half as much as some of my very rudimentary back of the envelope models suggested. The the way that home price declines usually evolve throughout the cycle is in two phases. The first phase is what we just experienced, which is housing as the leading indicator. The Federal Reserve's tightens monetary policy, interest rates go up, the volume of transactions slows down, and that takes the first 5 or 10% out of the market in terms of home prices. We've seen that. Now the Fed uh, has effectively paused monetary tightening, and that's been reflected in mortgage rates declining from about 7 to 625 or 650. So you've had a stabilization of mortgage rates, and that's given a little bit of life to the housing sector, as you mentioned. It's very common though, that when you pause monetary tightening that you do see this stabilization because mortgage rates come down and buyers have a little bit more clarity that they can feel comfortable that, okay, mortgage rates probably aren't gonna go to seven and a half or 8%. They're probably in the in the high end of, of where they're gonna end up because the Fed's unlikely to tighten significantly more. When the Fed paused monetary tightening in the middle of 2006, you actually saw a small stabilization in the housing market as well. So if interest rates stabilize, which it looks like they have, housing could stabilize unless the labor market turns down. That's the second phase of the housing market declines that that usually comes in a recession. 
which is that the labor market declines, and then you get a very significant decline in demand. And you also get a significant increase in inventory because people who have lost their jobs are forced sellers, even if they have a great mortgage rate, even if they believe their you know, house may rise in value or anything like that. If you can't afford your payment, of course, you have to list your house for sale. So if the economy has a soft landing, meaning that you don't get any material increase in unemployment, then you could be right. The housing market may have stabilized because the worst of the interest rate moves are likely over. But if we do go into a more official recession and you do get a increase in the unemployment rate with one, two, three million job losses, then we're likely to move into this second phase of housing market declines, which come from uh, a, a break in the labor market. Uh, I do think that that's going to come. So I think that we have seen this stabilization, but as the labor market starts to get a little shakier, like we're seeing in some of the data, we should see this, this housing stabilization fizzle out and then turn down quite aggressively if the unemployment rate starts to rise. So I think it's a little too early to say with any confidence that the housing market has officially bottomed and is going to turn higher for the next year or two years. It's still a little early. We have to see what happens with the labor market. Got it. So when we dig deeper, even in the housing market, there's a divergence between the single family housing and the multifamily housing. The single family, we have seen that permits, units under construction. So everything peaked last year and we have seen around 12 to 13 months of decline. Whereas multifamily, the bullish run is, con is continuing till today. So I have the numbers with me and the housing, the units under construction is the highest ever. The 1970s period was when the peak demographics were there and there was a lot of demand for housing, multifamily housing because of the demographics. But today, what are the reasons for this bullish run? I know that we all know that the institution money flowed into the multi-housing post-COVID, uh, post-COVID when the fiscal and monetary policy was significantly loose. But today, do you think that this is sustainable? Will multifamily will be the uh, will be uh, similar to what happened in the GFC subprime mortgage crisis? Do you think that there is oversupply in the multifamily? What do you think about this divergence between single family and the multifamily? Okay, so I'm just going to be super clear that I at this point I'm speculating, but I will mm -hmm. outline what I believe to be a a potential um explanation for what's been going on when if you've ever read the book uh manias panics and crashes by charles kindleberger which i highly recommend everyone read they outline the anatomy of a crisis or the anatomy of a bubble or the anatomy of what they describe as manias panics and then crashes and they go through all of the different manias throughout time, dating back to the 1800s. And the way that it usually works is there's some significant shock that happens in the economy that changes behavior. Um, for example, when they built the canals in the United States, there was real estate speculation on the canals. People were building homes on the newly formed canals. And People borrowed money to speculate and build homes to resell them, hoping the price would go up. When they built the railroads in the United States, there was again speculation near the railroads. Everyone wanted to borrow money and put up homes or apartments. 
on the railroads, hoping again, the price would rise. So when you, when you take a shock or a large change in behavior and you couple that with very easy money, it tends to lead to speculative behavior. Um, so all of these things are easy to declare with hindsight. Um, but when COVID happened, there was a very significant migration of people from New York and California and various high cost areas to Florida, Texas, Tennessee, and various low cost areas. Now, that migration was very real, just as the building of the canals was very real and the building of the railroads were very real. It was a real shock, a real phenomenon. There were definitely people moving to Florida. So there was a, there's certainly an increase in demand for housing. Obviously, we also had extraordinarily easy money. So it looks to me like there was an extreme amount of speculative building in some of these areas. Um, if you look into the building permits data, if you look at the Southern multifamily building permits, so just Southern multifamily, that equals 26% of all building permits in the entire country. So wow. essentially apartment construction in Florida, Georgia, and Tennessee was 25, 26% of all of the construction happening in the entire country. That includes single family. It includes California and all these other places. It's just a very high number. Now, I'm not suggesting that there was no demand. Of course, there was demand. There was a very significant migration. But if we follow the manias, panics, and crashes blueprint, you take a shock, which was a very real migration pattern, and you couple that with easy money. And what that tends to lead to is a lot of speculative building. Um, and it looks to me like that has played out to a large extent in some of this apartment construction, um, you know, how it was financed, how risky it is. All of these things are, are open questions. But if I had to place a bet, I would say that there was um, an excess of speculative apartment uh, construction in some of these Southern states. And those assets are unlikely to be worth what they were projected to be. Um, if these migration patterns either slow down, reverse, or uh, rent inflation is not perpetually higher as some of or all of these models really require. So can we say that the price declines in the multifamily will be greater than the single family and it will be region geographically specific? So the southern part will have uh, higher price declines while the northern part will have lower price declines. It will be not... Uh, homogeneous but granular. Do you think? Yeah, the, the real estate declines are always very, very granular. The hmm. the declines tend to be larger in the areas that have more speculative construction. So hmm. in in Las Vegas, in Arizona, in some parts of Texas, and then you know some parts of Florida. These historically are the areas that um, allow a, a significant amount of new construction. I live in the New York area. It's extremely difficult to build one single house, let alone an apartment building or let alone 
you know, a community of a thousand houses, but in uh, some of the southern parts of the country and in other parts like Arizona and Nevada, it's very common for builders to build communities with thousands of houses. Um, that phenomenon doesn't exist so much uh, in the East Coast um, or in the Northeast. So price declines tend not to be as boom bust. Uh, but in some of these areas with tons and tons and tons of construction, they tend to rise more on the way up and fall more on the way down. So I agree that price declines are likely to be uh, very granular. So other leading indicator is the ISM. I think everyone who is following the macro in the US follows ISM numbers very closely. And we have seen in the last two months that there has been certain bounce from the bottom. And it is rising. Generally, what happens that when ISM rises from the lows and above and goes up above 50, we see that even the equity markets rally, and we are currently seeing the same phenomena happening. So, do you think that it is a dead cat bounce, or do you think that it will fall once more and it, it is yet to bottom? Also, I want to add that uh, do you think that the rise is because the consumer spending is still not fallen as much as it should have been? Uh, in the period that we are, there is still $500 billion of excess savings with the consumers. So what do you think will be the uh, direction of the ISM? So, so I think the, the ISM is being held up by three, three factors, all of which are somewhat interconnected. The first factor is that the new orders component is falling quite, quite dramatically. We see the new orders number at about 45, which is a very sharp contraction. You know, if the new orders component rises from 44 to 46, that's not too concerning to me because it's still a very, very significant decline. Um, the, the, the numbers that are holding the report up are the production numbers. And the reason the production numbers are holding up is because while new orders have dried up, manufacturers are still working off some of their backlog. So they've been able to keep production running higher than what the incoming new orders would suggest. That's going to fizzle out very quickly. Um, but because they still are producing things from this backlog, they can't lay off a significant portion of their employees. They still need those employees to finish the production. So that's the second component. The employment number is hovering around 50. It hasn't fallen significantly. So you have residual production, which is keeping the number higher. That's causing employers to hold on to staff a little bit longer. So the, the um, employment number hasn't fallen. And then you've seen the prices paid number um, uh, oscillate a little bit below uh, 50 and then jump back a little bit above 50. So you have a tiny bit of residual inflation pressure, uh, but mainly you have residual backlogs of production that's requiring uh, uh, employment. So uh, it's a more of a backlog phenomenon in my view. And, and once these backlogs clear, which I think the evidence is that they're they've cleared in, in, in a majority of industries, then you're going to see the production number catch down to where the new orders number is. And if you don't need to produce anything, then you're free to begin laying off your staff. So the production and employment numbers are really holding the number higher. And if we had to break the components into leading or lagging, production and employment are definitely lagging while new orders and... Um, 
um, supplier delivery times tend to be the leading indicators. Both of those metrics are still at the 45 level. So I think that's what's keeping the number elevated. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we have another leg lower in the ISMs. Right. Now we talk about the CPI, the inflation numbers, and there has been debate recently that the inflation will be sticky and also because of the fiscal policy that we discussed that the fiscal policy is still loose while the monetary policy is significantly tighter than what we had a year back. And do you think that the fiscal policy will induce inflation, which will lead to a stagflationary scenario? Now, suppose we get an unemployment rate of 4, 4.5 to 5%, but the inflation is still higher. And the Fed is stuck in that case, and we have elections as well next year. So what do you think, how, how will this scenario pan out? Do, are you in the camp which feels that stagflation is the future, or do you think that the inflation story is over and we will not get a rebound in inflation going forward? So my process for inflation is that inflation follows what's called a money price wage spiral. I think a lot of people get the sequencing backwards when they say inflation is a wage price spiral. I think that's the incorrect sequence. I believe that inflation follows a money price wage spiral. So what that means is first you have a contraction in monetary policy. The contraction in monetary policy then leads to declines in the prices of various commodities and inputs. And then you see the labor market weaken and wage inflation and services inflation start to come down. If we look at the way that it moved in reverse, in 2020, we had a very significant increase in monetary growth. Uh, then the price of commodities like copper and pretty much any commodity that you can think of started to rise. And then after that, after the price of all the commodities went up, only then did uh, uh, laborers uh, try and bargain for wage increases that we're now talking about today, almost two years after the very significant monetary acceleration. So now the process is working in reverse where the Federal Reserve has contracted monetary aggregates. The price level of everything is starting to come down. The price of assets like stocks are coming down. The price of oil is coming down. The price of Almost all commodities that you can think of in, in, in broad terms are starting to come down. The price of various durable goods are starting to come down. Um, so to the extent that we don't see a reacceleration of monetary aggregates, then this money price wage spiral will continue. Contractionary monetary policy, lower prices, and then we'll start to see wages and labor loosen up here in the next couple of months. So when we talk about fiscal and monetary policy, for me, I'm just going to read and react and look at what's happening to the monetary aggregates. We hear a lot of people saying that fiscal stimulus is very robust right now. We can track the, the, the impetus of this fiscal stimulus through various monetary aggregates, um, and it's contracting very sharply. So if six months from now, I see various monetary aggregates start to shoot higher, then I would be concerned that you can have a reacceleration of inflation. But to the extent that you have very significant contractions in monetary aggregates, I've never seen a situation historically across you know decades of history in many countries. I've never seen a bout of 
um, rapid runaway or, or hard to beat inflation if monetary growth is negative. Sometimes it's difficult for policymakers to contain monetary growth, but for now, we have very significant contractions in monetary growth that's going to lead us to, to lower inflation. If we see these monetary aggregates shoot up in the future as a result of fiscal or monetary or a combination of both, then we can have a conversation about a reacceleration. But for now, the inflation cycle, in my view, is, is very firmly pointed to the downside. Regarding monetary aggregates, uh, some market participants believe that the growth, the trend and growth has still not reached even after the contraction. So the COVID impetus was so large, the money supply growth, the money aggregates grow, grew so uh, in such a large number that even after the contraction that we are witnessing, we are still not on the, uh, on the trend growth. If we draw grow, trend line growth uh, for the last 10 years, we are still away from it, still higher than the trend growth. So do you think that we need a significant contraction monetary aggregates or are you comfortable with the current degrowth or the contraction that you're witnessing? So I think the most appropriate way to look at it is to adjust these monetary aggregates for inflation and look at real. Uh, I always think it's best to look at these data in real terms because let's say you flood the system with deposits like they did and everybody has $100 in their bank account. Uh, and the price of goods, let's say, is $10. Everybody can now go and buy a significant portion or, or more of those goods. If you can buy more goods or more volume, that's real term, then that increases production. It increases um, the cyclical engine of the economy. But let's say the Fed puts $100 into everyone's bank account and they haven't spent it all, but the price level of the goods rises from 10 to 100 you can't really consume any more in terms of the volume of goods. So volume of output will still fall. You'll have less freight on trucks. You'll have less units moving throughout the economy. So it's the real term that's important because if you dump a whole bunch of money into the economy, but the price level rises really rapidly, then in, in, the, in terms of the number of units, your populace can't consume anymore in terms of number. And units are real terms and the price level is inflation. So when you deflate all of these monetary aggregates by inflation and look at it in real terms, we're actually now, as of last month, below the long-term trend line. Um, so what that means to me is that all of this excess money that's been put into the system has already been absorbed into the price level. And now people are not going to be able to keep up with the same volume of consumption. So you're going to see a contraction in the number of units moving throughout the economy. And as we're starting to see in the trucking and transportation industry, th their trucks are empty. They can't move any goods throughout the economy because it's units and volume that keeps the economy going. So while there is excess money on a nominal sense, in a real sense, we're not going to be able to consume the same number of goods. That's going to put downward pressure on volumes, downward pressure on trucks, transportation. That's why you're seeing layoffs in the manufacturing, trucking, transportation sectors. Those layoffs should, if the sequence holds properly, proliferate throughout the rest of the economy. So that's why I think that uh, I'm not overly concerned with the fact that the money stock has um, not return to its pre-COVID trend, 
it's likely never to. And, and the difference is just going to come out of the fact that velocity has likely reached a new secular oh, trough. That was a great explanation. So the last question I always asked my, ask my guest uh, on the podcast is the asset allocation. Considering uh, your research on the business cycle and what you think that we are currently, we will be in a recession very soon or we are in a recession. So considering that scenario, what do you think uh, investors or portfolio managers should do with, with in their portfolio? Do you think that uh, the bonds is the best, uh, they should allocate more to the bonds or to equities? Or do you, uh, do you suggest some alternative asset class? So asset allocations are always tough because it depends on who you are and your perspective and your risk tolerance and, and a lot of various factors. But I will answer broadly that I do believe that the economy is either in an early stage recession now or will be in the next month or two. It's very difficult to say with any degree of certainty in real time, but ultimately it doesn't make too much of a difference if the recession started in Q1 or Q2. The asset allocation uh, decisions will likely be the same. Um, so you're correct. I think the economy is in a recession or soon to be. And as a result, I would want to generally be taking very little risk with my portfolio. Uh, or And what I mean by that is um, economic risk. So risk assets, as we call them, like stocks, corporate bonds, real estate, uh, they're called risk assets because they have economic risk. When the economy is doing well, those assets perform very well, and it's beneficial to hold those assets because they usually deliver a rate of return significantly above cash. But when the economy is decelerating and unemployment is rising, these risk assets do not tend to perform very well, or um, they get extremely volatile, and any return that they do offer tends to be negated by, by how volatile the asset has become. So individual stocks and individual sectors will uh, differ, but broadly, stock prices should not perform that well uh, in the months ahead. Uh, some people will say the stock market has been performing great. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that because it's really concentrated in a few stocks. Um, the IWC micro cap index has made a new low. Um, it's been it's it's a new low from over two years ago. So I mean, very significant declines in micro caps. The IWM small cap index has also made another new low. Uh, peak was in uh, twenty twenty one. So very large portions of the stock market have been performing quite poorly over the last several quarters, and I think that negative performance continues. The S and P five hundred is always the strongest index. Uh, because it's usually held together by the strongest companies. Um, so I'm, I'm not overly positive on the S&P 500 either, although I'd be more positive on these large cap companies that can probably weather a recession better than, than micro caps. But from a broad standpoint, I'm not positive on risk assets like stocks or real estate into what I think is a recession. Um, I do think that you can... Um, safely hide out in short-term treasury bonds or short-term treasury bills that are offering quite attractive yields. Uh, I don't know how long these yields will last, but for the time being, it's a great alternative. Um, 
And if you have a higher risk tolerance and you want to perhaps speculate or try and profit from a recession, I do think that there is value in long duration bonds, um, ETFs like TLT and, and, and others, because um, the timing is hard, but I do believe that um, by the time this recession is over, interest rates will be uh, at zero or close to zero. So if you're able to um, catch that move, long-term treasury bonds will probably offer the most profit potential. Um, but I would say that it is a risky asset. It does have a lot of volatility to it. It can decline in price. Um, so I would say that I'm generally not too positive on risk assets. I think that cash is the best alternative for people with lower risk tolerances. You're getting compensated very well for that cash. And if you would like to maybe have some more speculative profit seeking opportunities in a recession, long duration bonds do offer um, some profit potential if the Fed is forced to cut interest rates aggressively. So one one more, one last question. How much probability will you give to a soft landing, to a mild recession and to a hard landing? Um, I I'm gonna say that I would I would place my wager um, towards a hard landing. It's probabilities are hard in all three camps, but I would say that we are um, I would say that we're significantly greater than a 50% chance of, of a hard landing. Okay. Thank you, Eric. Thanks a lot for time. And uh, please follow Eric on Twitter. Uh, also, he has built a great community at EPB Research. I am a silver member. There are two ties, silver and gold. Uh, Eric has a cyclical, monthly cyclical update in the gold, gold tier and the weekly updates in the silver tier. It's a great community. Please be a part if you can. And thank you, Eric, for your time. Thank you so much. I loved your questions. And, and thank you for being a part of the community. Uh, and I hope to see everyone there soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye.